a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. excited to be here. It really feels like we're in float to do this podcast. In the springtime last year, I didn't really have any plans for it. I just thought this is what I need to do. I knew I was speaking to so many menopause experts and medical professionals around helping women have a better menopause experience after a cancer diagnosis. But I also knew it was all sort of in isolated pockets. I run programs for charities. I recorded so many webinars for my own empowered menopause program for women with a cancer diagnosis who are in menopause. And I've run so many workshops where other practitioners and doctors came in and I thought, gosh, someone needs to bring it all into a home because there are so many amazing doctors. And the majority of women tell me they haven't got a clue where to go or who to ask for help. And so that's when I thought it would be a great idea to do the podcast. But I never anticipated that it would be quite a lot of work. (laughs) I decided to go out weekly because I feel that's the best way to connect with you. It's, of course, added to my to-do list massively, and it's also brought me so much joy, and it's been fabulous to connect with so many people, and it's been brilliant to hear so many fabulous responses from you of how specific episodes have helped you. But just over the last few weeks, I think we there was a bit of a shift, a bit of a turning point, and I feel we're in real flow state now. I've got more and more medical professionals reaching out to me this week. An oncologist reached out and a couple of nurses reached out just to talk to me about their experiences in practice and to discuss the things they've been listening to on the podcast. And to me, that fills me with so much joy because, as you know from when you listen to my previous episodes, to me, it's very much a what can you do for yourself every single day? What can we do in our everyday active life to improve not just our symptoms, but how we're feeling and doing in general? And what help and support can we draw on from healthcare professionals? And so it is a very much, very much holding hands process and doing this together. So I feel like we're in proper flow state and it feels really good and really right to be doing this. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what I wanted to share with you. I'm super, super chuffed that Dr. Angela Wright found the time to speak to us on the podcast today. She's a GP and menopause specialist and a clinical sexologist. And I'm delighted to talk to Angela for very many reasons. But one reason is that Angela doesn't just treat the illness, the physical problem we have or disease, 
Angela is so aware that this body is so much more than the physical body that we need to address our emotional and mental health as much as our physical health. Not all at the same time and not all always to the same importance, but sometimes one part of healing can't really happen if we don't address a little bit of each at least. But she's so much better at explaining that and I'm going to welcome her in in a moment. She is particularly interested in improving sexual function and menopausal symptoms in women who have undergone cancer treatment. And so, of course, she is the perfect guest for our podcast. There is something really particular and special about Dr. Wright. She passed a very specific examination to become a fellow of the European Committee of Sexual Medicine. There are not that many practitioners of that caliber in the country, only about 40. And so Dr. Wright will be talking about a particular medication that is not yet readily available for everyone. She does prescribe it off license and it's definitely not something you're just going to be getting from your GP. It needs specialist care um, to talk about it. And so initially I didn't quite know is it a good idea to bring it onto the podcast if perhaps not everyone can access it. The reason I've decided to talk about it on the podcast today is two reasons. One, it gives me much hope that there is research being done that we don't know about. And so if we think there is research being done about the particular medication Dr. Wright is going to talk about, then other stuff is happening. And this is great for us to know because nothing is ever stuck. Everything is in transit. And I think in our lifetime, there will be many changes and advances coming out in terms of treatments for women who are in menopause after a cancer diagnosis that go away and above perhaps just thinking is HRT appropriate for me or not. There is new stuff and new research being done and new medication as well to help us live with the often debilitating symptoms better. So that is one reason why I thought it's great to discuss. The other reason is when Angela talks about this, it's very clear from her that when we talk about libido and perhaps the loss of sex drive and desire, this is not just a physical um, problem that needs healing. It's very interwoven and it's something she is really passionate about talking to her patients about. And I just wanted her to elaborate on that conversation. We also talk about cognitive behavior therapy because so much is to do with our anxiety and and some of the things and the hardships we experience even years after our initial cancer diagnosis don't make any sense to anyone else. And cognitive behavior therapy can be a really good tool. And she'll talk us through what it is. Is it normal cognitive behavior therapy or is this a specific model she talks about? And so I'm um, Really delighted that Angela found the time for us today. And so here she is, Dr. Angela Wright. Hello, Angela. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. There is so much I'd love to talk to you about. And I've just introduced you about all the amazing things you do and the work you do. You're a little bit different to other menopause specialists because you quite enjoy talking about people's feelings and how we're doing emotionally. This isn't something myself or many other people I meet um, say that they've experienced that with their doctors. How come? Tell us a little bit about that. I think it's, I mean, it's just the by, by way of the training that I've had. So I was working in women's health as a GP. 
and I did clinical sexology training first. So I, I, I'd sort of noticed a gap when I was seeing women that I couldn't help them with sexual pain or their you know, trauma histories. I had no one to refer them to. So I went and did some training with counsellors. And so for two years, I was doing psychosexual therapeutic training in a room full of counsellors. And it just gave me exposure to a really different framework that I'd never really had exposure to before as a medic. And actually, I look back and I think it's astonishing that we as doctors don't get that kind of training because it's been so helpful in so many ways since I've done that kind of work. And then the reason that I ended up doing menopause work was just that a lot of the women that I was seeing who were struggling with sexual problems, it was because they were going through that kind of transition. And they taught they taught a biased psychosocial model, this idea that, you know, if something goes wrong with sex or with anything, it doesn't solely go wrong in your body. It, it's often got kind of other areas. So, you know, your, your mind and your psychology are involved or your world and your role and your relationship are involved. And I just think when you have that kind of a view of things, it gives you a bigger toolbox, loads more solutions, and it makes sense to people. Yeah. And it just shows how complex we all are, aren't we? It's especially when we talk about sexual desire. I don't think it is just about loops and a vibrator (laughs) and all your problems are sorted, although they are brilliant tools as part of your toolbox. But we are so much more complex than that. Yeah, 100 percent. Myself and many women that I speak to on a regular basis, we often say cancer has been very partly a physical experience, of course, when you undergo treatment and surgeries. But the bigger weight over a much, much longer and prolonged period of time has been the psychological impact on our every single day well-being. And that often we don't talk about because when I went to see my oncologists and my surgeons, I wanted them to know that I'm doing well. And so I put a brave face on and I was telling them how well I was doing and how well I was recovering. And I wasn't saying how much I am struggling, even years later at points. Do you see the same is true with many of the patients you see? Yeah, so I mean, I see people in different settings. I do some work with um, with Maggie specifically with women that have gone through cancer treatment or breast cancer, but all sorts of different cancer. And we did some research into what their experiences were like. And actually that came up, this idea that because you've had quite a lot of treatment, you've had quite a lot of expense from the NHS, quite a lot of effort in making you get better. There's almost a kind of guilt about saying what doesn't feel okay or coming up, you know, talking about quality of life issues afterwards rather than just cancer related issues or recovery related issues. So I think there is something like that that comes up, but it's a it's a huge shift. You know, it's a huge safety shift, I think, having a a potentially life threatening diagnosis. And we've talked about this before, before we've recorded in the podcast, but that is a form of trauma. And I don't think that we recognise that enough and delve in and give people enough space to kind of talk about what that experience is like and what the impacts of that are like afterwards. But trauma sounds so extreme. And I guess that's why we don't want to use it almost for even for ourselves. Is there a way of describing what trauma is and how can we identify yeah. maybe with it? I mean, I think I think, yeah, it's an overused, it's an overused word in some ways. And I think it's there's always a danger when you talk about anything that you're not going to talk about every every single individual person's experience. So, you know, it doesn't mean that everybody would have sort of felt it in that way, but I've heard it described as there's big T trauma and little T trauma. And, you know, big T trauma is often the stuff that we think of as trauma, the kind of, you know, violent events or um, earth shattering disasters. And then there's the little T traumas, which are the small additive impacts. And I think a typical kind of trip through cancer diagnosis and treatment probably involves a combination of both of those. There's the big 
ticket stuff of being told that your body has done something that you didn't know it was doing when you went looking. And that's a, a really frightening experience, I think, for lots of people. But just the sort of the, the onward treatment, you know, there's a lot of pain and discomfort and unpleasant symptoms and having to subject yourself to things that you know are going to be really uncomfortable and difficult. And, and none of that, I don't think much of that is really acknowledged in kind of the additive effect of how safe you feel in your body or your relationship with your body after that. So, you know, I just think there's something important. I often find just validating that and kind of saying that it's that's something that people can feel has value in and of itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel society so celebrates the people who are strong and brave and the thrivers and survivors and the people who really battle and and the ter- yeah. terminology alone is really we use that language to... don't we yeah, yeah. Actually, my friend's son had cancer and she wrote a beautiful blog piece about you know how it's not a war we use this kind of battle terminology that then kind of makes it look as if you haven't fought hard enough or you haven't done you know you haven't been sort of brave enough or strong enough and it's it's not like that is it so yeah we don't well, it, if you're not positive enough then yeah. you're not quite doing the right thing how do you talk to your patients? Do they talk to you about how they're feeling or do you open Pandora's box as to say and ask them about how they're actually doing? I think I do a lot of what I would probably call giving giving space or giving permission because I don't, you know, not everybody wants to talk about the subjects that I'm trained in. So if I'm going to go in and talk about sexuality, for a lot of people, that isn't something that they particularly feel comfortable on the first visit to chat about. So a lot of it is about giving permission or maybe saying you know that that some people will experience this and just leaving it out there and then then the patient that's with me can then decide to pick up on that if they want to or not but I'm not sure I have a particular plan about how I go about it with patients I just I'm genuinely curious I genuinely want to understand like what they've experienced and how they feel and I do look at it in those three dimensions quite naturally now I think I've really shifted from that body-based illness view that I was trained in as a doctor into a space that's much broader than that um, so the conversation naturally takes itself there anyway a lot of the time if you give people space they'll fill it mm, that is so interesting because the focus is so much on fixing the broken body I- I- initially yeah. and when you talk about the big t and the little t I feel the same applies to people supporting someone with an illness or with cancer because there is so much trauma in yeah. watching a relative, a, a friend, a child, whoever it is that you're close to suffering with an illness or something that they really um, have to fight as such. And I wonder how other people can be supported through the same process because sometimes it's not just us, isn't it? There's such a ripple effect. and yeah. And gosh, I feel there's so much healing to be done on so many levels, apart from, of course, the physical body that is needs fixing at first and the cancer needs treating. And then we're left with often women saying, I'm quite broken bodied, but also broken hearted in a way. Yeah. And and if seven, eight years down the line, our anxiety is still soaring. Gosh, it can feel so blimming exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing. It's a, It almost feels like we've got this structure around diagnosis and treatment and you know getting to the end of that process but then there's a bit of a gap actually afterwards isn't there you you kind of end someone quite different in many ways from who you were before you got the diagnosis but I'm not sure that there's that much support and structure at that stage certainly not from the NHS there's quite a lot of third sector organizations that do sort of where next and you know some support at that at that point but I think that's the bit that we probably talk about least you know from when I talk about sexual function with women after cancer and men after cancer 
you know, it's almost like everybody thinks that that's something that's quite unusual, but it's the third most prevalent issue that people struggle with when they've gone through cancer treatment. It's a really big deal to a lot of people that they've lost that kind of or changed that aspect of their identity and their relationship. But from what I can see, there still isn't enough structure around, you know, giving people permission to talk about it, giving them options for support and then kind of helping people to um, to move forward from there mm. other than leaving them with it. And and it is a big thing if our um, sex life changes at home in a relationship, for example, that used to be a certain way and it's totally different. That is a very big change that w- will have an impact. And yeah, the same absolutely. goes for people who are not in a relationship and they might want to seek relationships yeah. with whoever that might be. So these are really big things. But then also what we think about is, is it important enough to address? I've got bigger yeah. fish to fry sometimes. And am I going to use the seven or eight or nine minutes I've got with my doctor in many cases to talk about sexuality? And is there much they can do for me? And yeah, so there's... that's why we often then perhaps tend to not even address it because we think, well, what is it that they can do for me? I don't think we address it. I mean, there's stats that say that we don't address it routinely. You know, there's a differential between um, we talk about it at the beginning of cancer treatment with about two thirds of men, but only with about a third of women. You know, wow. and I think and I think that's you know, my personal view on that is it's because it's much more visible when there's sexual dysfunction in a male body after cancer treatment. And if for, for female bodied individuals, we may get less pleasure. We may not feel the same arousal. We, you know, those kind of things may be happening, but it's less visually obvious externally. It's, it's possible to kind of to still have sex without enjoying it in the same way. So I think we've, we've got, I get really cross about that. I think it's really, um, we should make sure that we put everything on the table for people in a way that they then can decide to do something about if they want to, because the stats show that patients don't talk to us about it. You know, they don't bring it to us. So it's just an unknown. It's out there and it's happening to a big chunk of people um, and we're not giving people enough resources or support around it. Um, Mm. So I do think as doctors, if we're going to do something that we know is going to leave people with quite predictable difficulties, I think the onus is on us to provide that information at the beginning, just at least to give some choices. Mm. And sometimes if years down the line, these things haven't improved, like, for example, our um, sex life or our desire or how we used to do things, it almost feels like it's too late to address things. And because initially when we go through treatment, often we expect that there is a time when life will be quite different. You expect perhaps to lose your hair when you go through chemotherapy and perhaps also that your sex life takes a a seat at the back. And those things are normal, but when they don't improve or change, if you want them to improve or change, that's when it becomes quite deflating. And the longer time goes by the more you think well it's just too late now isn't it do you think it's too late or do you think there is always time to address it I think a lot of that is in the definition of what counts as sex you know we tend to reduce that definition to really you know penetration based heteronormative based this is what sex is kind of definition but on a physical front yeah if you leave things a long time it can get quite difficult to kind of improve some of the physical things that are impacting on sexual function but there's still always something that you can do but in terms of fostering you know intimacy in a way that has value and helps you to feel emotionally close to your partner and makes you feel you get some esteem and value from it I think there's always room to do that and what I see a lot in 
in clinic is people who are avoiding it because it's it's too big and it's too painful to go near something that feels so different and there's a lot of loss around it. So what happens a lot, I find, is that a lot of intimacy goes away altogether, you know, just just cuddling or just sort of going on a date night or going to bed at the same time. Lots of little manoeuvres happen to make sure that that question doesn't come up. And that leaves quite a gap in the relationship. So, yeah, I do do work with people that have been um, many years after cancer. I'll kind of come across them for some reason and we still have space to do useful things. And is this again then an approach that you would say there is a psychological approach to it and the physical approach? Because, of course, vaginal atrophy is so many women complain, especially when they're on aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen. So we have those physical symptoms that stop us from even wiping ourselves sometimes. And then there is the emotional. What if I cuddle with him or her? Will that then lead to something else? Exactly. and so I'd rather not even go go there in the yeah. first place. So there's those two approaches, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And also there's the other side of the partner's side of it as well as the, a fear of hurting, a fear of demanding, you know, so there's, there's both sides of that relationship that I think can have a hurdle. Um, I think the physical stuff goes much deeper than a lot of people talk about. We, we're talking a bit more about vaginal atrophy, which is definitely relevant and, and has, you know, hormonal and non-hormonal things that you can do. But there's also kind of direct and indirect other impacts from cancer treatments and medications that people end up on, you know, not just the hormonal stuff, but other stuff like painkillers and and blood pressure medications and antidepressants, all that other stuff can impact a lot on arousal and desire and libido. And people don't always realize about that. So there's a, you know, there's that stuff can often be tweaked and improved. I sometimes use increasingly use PD5 inhibitors. So those are drugs like Viagra. I've got a good basis for use in male bodies. And in my role, I use those more often now in women who can't use hormones or prefer not to. That can sometimes help. I've never heard of those. Are they they the female sort of Viagra? They are are Viagra, yeah. So so the drugs, so if you've got a male-bodied individual going into cancer treatment, will often use those drugs to keep blood supply good to the genitals and to the kind of sexual organs and and that's because you've got a focus on something visible like erection. You, know, you can see an erection. So if it doesn't work, you know that there's a problem with sex. But female bodies are derived from exactly the same tissue. They work in a really similar way with really similar pathways. And we've got increasing bits of evidence now that suggest that if we use the same drugs in women's bodies, they can improve blood flow. That's off license, which means that lots of people are a bit nervous about prescribing. It's definitely a specialist kind of indication. I wouldn't expect a GP to be comfortable doing that but in the role that I sit in and doing the kind of work that I do sometimes that's more acceptable to somebody than a hormone might be with their history so there are other things that we can sometimes do and sometimes it's about you know stopping the antidepressant or stopping the things that are taking the breaks on sex and that can really help as well and it's then figuring out what are your priorities isn't it because often what do you want it to look like Exactly. And women don't take antidepressants lately, but they're often used to treat symptoms of the menopause when perhaps hormone replacement therapy isn't an option because of the history of cancer. And then they're brilliant and they can work for many of the symptoms. If they don't have a knock on on your desire, for example, gosh, that's frustrating, isn't it? (laughs) I think it's about for me, it's about informed consent, because I, I sit and talk to women who at all ages and stages actually women who've had cancers those that haven't and they all have a really different sense of risk and what comfort is around risk and what their priorities are 
So I think the only thing that, that we can aspire to do as doctors is to literally lay out all the information that we've got in front of somebody so that yeah. they can make that choice. Because I, because honestly, every woman that I speak to will weigh that balance up really differently. And yeah. I agree with you. I think antidepressants, you know, they literally can be life, life-saving in um, some women and certainly quality of life-saving. But I don't know that everybody gets told fully about the impacts they have on sexual function, you know. So I think understanding yeah. that then allows you to weigh things up, particularly because most women don't go to their doctors and say how important sex is to them or you know, whether yeah. or not they're feeling arousal like they were before. So we're, we're sort of making choices by default when we don't share that information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes we just have big things that are really burning, whatever symptoms they are that are really stopping us in our tracks. And we want to yeah. do everything to put out that fire. And then the sort of effects or aftermath, we sort of deal with it then. And that's quite normal and natural, isn't it? As long as Absolutely. we have someone to talk us through it. Yeah, when absolutely. we need to address it with the drugs you have just mentioned that you can prescribe um, off license for women as well what sort of improvements have women reported to you so the the main sort of evidence base is in male-bodied individuals so what these drugs do is they um they were originally designed to be drugs for heart disease for angina actually so they, they open blood vessels but the blood vessels in the erectile tissues so penis in man or clitoral tissues in women also, they're the smallest ones in the body, so they need to be open. You need to get oxygen to those tissues for the tissues to work well. So the, the kind of theoretical basis of what they do is they open up the blood supply and they help to keep the tissue more healthy. And there are various pockets of research evidence from various sections of, of patients that show that that's what they do. We don't have lots of evidence in female patients yet. We don't have lots of evidence in um, women who've had cancer treatment, but we have quite a lot of research in male bodies that show that it does work really well. So many of us are using them more off license with good effects and it just helps to get the blood supply back into the tissues. It might help with that feeling of arousal. So yeah. rather than, I get asked a lot about libido as if libido is only kind of something that testosterone is involved in improving, mm. but actually... You know, it's really circular. If you're not enjoying sex because it hurts or because you don't get aroused, then you don't, we don't do stuff we don't like, you know, so a libido yeah. falls because you're not getting a reward of any sort from it. Um, or you might even be getting something negative from it. So sometimes dealing with loss of libido means doing a little bit here and a little bit there and, a little, you know, do, you do lots of things. Some of them might be psychological. Some of them might be about the relationship. Some of it might be about tilting things in the body. And then you get things moving in the right direction. So mm. we've got a limited toolkit sometimes in patients that have got lots of meds that they can't have. You know, so we have to sort of think, well, what have we got available to us that we can use and what might be useful for that patient? Yeah. And are there, of course, there's always contraindications, but is this a medication you would take every day and then slowly your libido might increase because there's more blood flow? Or is this something you say, I'm going to have sex tonight, I'm going to pop <laughs> Yeah, so one of those it's used in both ways in male bodies again there's not the um the research evidence to help us to work out what's the best approach to doing it in in women in men it's traditionally been used on a um dose basis you know so you'd use it because you want to have sex that night or in the next couple of days but the evidence base is better for a small dose every day because if you allow blood flow to get into the tissues the tissues stay healthy and then they respond better so that would be, and the studies that have been done, there's been some done in, in women who've got diabetes, um, diabetes and have had reduced blood flow to the clitoral tissues. They dosed it in that way. They did it on a daily basis and found that it improved sexual function. So it's kind of a watch this space and be aware of it kind of thing. I yeah. wouldn't want people to listen to the podcast and think that it's definitely 
okay to go and, and, and ask for that or to do that. But it is something that those of us that are specialist in this area are using a bit more and there's there's trials that need to be done to kind of establish how helpful it might be in women and I'm everyone who has been listening to this podcast knows I'm always banging on that we need specialist care every woman who's had a cancer diagnosis who finds herself somewhere in menopause whether it's temporary or permanent gosh we do really need specialist care and I feel, you know, upset for all of our GPs who are bombarded with questions that is really not part of their, their toolbox. They've not been to trained. No. You know, the, the way that I treat people now is so different to what I did before I did the specialist training because no one had ever explained to me how much we impact people's sexual identity, their sexual function, even with the non-cancer treatments. We, we trample all over it all of the time, actually, with lots of the drugs that we used and we're not trained in it in, in any sort of real way. So now that I've got the awareness, I do a lot of teaching around it because I'm, I'm kind of slightly horrified that we do that because it feels like we're making decisions for people for them, you know, by not asking them. And I just don't, yeah. I don't think that's the right way of approaching something as important as your sexual identity or sexual relationship. Mm. I mean, listening to you, there is a part of me that is hopeful thinking, oh, yeah, there is new stuff out there and new research, as you say, and uh, drugs I didn't know about. And that's brilliant. And we have a lot of healthcare professionals listening. And so, you know, this is great to talk about these things, but partly it's very frustrating and I'm feeling a little bit pissed off because <laughs> you think even Viagra has been out there, I don't know what, since the 70s and it's yeah, readily completely. available. And you go into my local pharmacy and you can get it an appointment for free and you can get it prescribed. You don't even need to see a GP and it's... yeah, yeah. And we have to struggle and fight so much to even have the conversation I as find women it- then... Exactly. And I kind of, I have to sort of watch myself getting on my my sort of soapbox about it. But I think, you know, because I don't think it's good enough. And I I do work with men after cancer as well. And, and it's not good enough there either. So it's, you know, it's like that whole thing. It's not like the, the pie, if one of us takes a slice out of it means that someone else doesn't get any, we can all kind of raise, you know, raise across the whole thing. But um, I think it's historically been that female sexual dysfunction is harder to see. It's, you know, we don't tend to, you can, you can cope with penetrative sex that's not pleasurable and keep quiet about it as a woman. I'm not suggesting that's the right thing to do, but I think that's what many people do. And I think it's much more visual and visible when there's a loss of erectile function in a man. And I suspect that's why it's always been that we've talked about it and done more about it. But that's why I I am always talking to my patients, not just about do they have pain during sex? I'll ask them about do they get aroused? Can they get pleasure? Does it? Because that's where we should start. We shouldn't wait for it to be painful. We should be being proactive at the point where you've lost sensation, actually, because that's yeah. kind of earlier in the process. And that's when we want to be intervening with it. So if I had my way, we would do prehab before women go into cancer treatment. We'd at least get them massaging, moisturizing, using emollients, looking after the tissues. We know that gentle vibration improves tissue quality. We know that massage and emollients improve tissue quality. So I think we could do with putting that in as part of what we ask people to do, or at least mm. let them know about yeah. as they step through that process. And there are some, not many, but there are some really good brands and products that many of you doctors that recommend that haven't got any yeah. harmful ingredients and that are really yeah. good to use. But if trauma comes before all of that, so if you, so if we talk yeah. about, for example, vaginal dryness is a little bit later almost than um, arousal, libido. Yeah. If a trauma have, ha- has happened to us even before that, so in the sort of 
timeline of it, that will really have an impact on arousal and libido as well, won't it? Massively. So the easiest way to to think about arousal is that it's like a balance between brakes and accelerators, you know, and and we are kept in a deliberately brakes on state. So we we kind of keep our erectile tissues deliberately squeezed out and and small, both men and women. And in order to get aroused, you have to kind of take the brakes on off and also press on the accelerators. But one of the biggest biological breaks that we've got is anxiety, is adrenaline. Adrenaline chemical in your body puts the brakes on your sexual response for really logical reasons. Because if we were back when we were evolved and you know living in caves and mating in caves, if a predator came along and we felt frightened, we had to switch off that process in order to escape. So trauma, you know, trauma is felt and anxiety is felt with cortisol and adrenaline. So when we and what I see with what I see with people in clinic is sometimes even just getting into the position. So people that have been through treatment for gynecological cancer, for example, who may have had brachytherapy, just the bodily positioning of sex is reminiscent of situations that might have been traumatic. And that can be where the trigger sort of starts, that that anxiety or that memory will will come up and that will absolutely clamp down on any arousal and move you to a different state so or it might be you know anxiety around showing your body or anxiety around your response not being the same as it was or not getting lubricated and that is enough to then put the brakes on the arousal process and kind of put you into a negative spiral so yeah Yeah. it really is important and in a way the anxiety brings us into a state that isn't in the here and now isn't it like yeah, when absolutely. i know I've, I've been going through years and months of real real heightened anxiety and it's always so doesn't make any sense to anyone else and it's so real to me and even when i years later maybe describe it to someone it doesn't even make sense to myself anymore but it was so real in the moment but it never allowed me to be in the moment and what yeah, you have yeah. to do to experience pleasure i guess in any way of form is to be in the moment and to allow to absorb the moment but my anxiety is always about worry of the future and so that takes me into the future or I dwell on something that's happened in the past past. and it's like this repetition of how I went into the MRI scanner or whatever it was and you've got the same movie playing in your head and so if I then try and have a a moment of intimacy this is really really difficult then because I'm so torn between the past and the future and I'm not here how do we yeah what do you do about that I mean I think that's the bit that we don't talk about so when I listen to conversation and I think it's great that we're talking about you know uh, menopause and sex and specifically induced menopause and cancer related menopause and so on but when I listen to people talk about it we're we're focusing on the body-based stuff and we don't talk about what's happening in people's minds enough and if you're either distracted during sex or dissociated so coming out of your body and you know almost and lots of the people that I talk to who've been through chemotherapy or radiotherapy, for example, or surgery, you know, how do we cope with painful experiences? We distance ourselves from them. You know, if you get blood taken, you look away, you try and remove yourself from your body and it becomes really habitual and really instinctual. And so when you're then safe at the end of this or relatively safe and in your body should be a safer place to be in, lots of people can't get back into their body. They've sort of instinctively started to dissociate. So that I think has a massive impact on libido because it has a massive impact on being present during pleasure and also your body feeling safe enough that you can expect to feel pleasure from it again because it's often been you know we, we talked about that that war analogy and not liking it but it's often that the whole fight is played out 
in mm. your body. So finding mm. a, a place to come back to and, and to feel safe to be in again and to focus on sensations from often takes a bit of practice, actually, for people or keeping their brains in what they're doing and on what's, what sort of in, um, feedback they're getting from their body is also mm. really difficult. So, yeah, that that's the stuff that I think is really important to recognise. And, you know, often, often all I'll do with somebody is just kind of tell them that that can happen and, and they'll recognise that that is what's happening. And then we'll talk about non-sexual stuff. You know, how much stuff in the last week were you able to feel present in your body to feel pleasure for of any sort, you know, which is why stuff like yoga and mindfulness and all that stuff is so important because it brings you back to an awareness of your body. Mm. Mm. It's the building blocks for the rest of it, really. I think eight out of 10 women I speak to really suffer with anxiety, whether that is when they're going through active treatment or much later or then menopause thrown into the mix. Do we then need to tackle the anxiety to even have a possibility of, of having a go at addressing our sexual functions or our libido is yeah, it like I mean, a chain of events that we need to sort of tick 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 until I get to my sex drive <laughs> or I guess I mean everybody's everybody's very different and the function of sex and intimacy in everyone's lives is different you know some people who are anxious will have it as a go-to thing because it allows some level of escapism or some some level of distraction from it so the relationship with with um, sexuality is different for everybody, but for lots of the problems or the difficulties that people have with um, their sexual response can be derailed by anxiety. You know, so that sort of performance anxiety, external anxieties, body image anxiety, yeah, chemically and also sort of thought wise it is enough to derail you. And I think, I mean, probably all of us would do much better to come out of our heads and into our bodies more often because we all tend to live a bit too much in our heads mm-hmm. rather than our bodies. But having a practice mm-hmm. of mindfulness or being able to ground effectively when you feel like you're catastrophizing or ruminating or your brain is sort of flying off, mm-hmm. being able to bring your awareness back and practicing that is a mm-hmm. skill that you can then take into intimacy as well. Mm. And we have um, spoken about it previously before. Is cognitive behavior therapy something that can be a useful tool when we talk about sexuality? Yeah, one of my um, colleagues is a counselor and she says, you know, we almost need to invent a therapy IKEA so that people can understand all the different types of therapy because, you know, we, we talk about them as if they're interchangeable um, and they all have different purposes and, and do different things. But CBT is much more about looking at behaviours and making you know, making deliberate um, interventions in behaviours to try and change what we do, what our defaults are. And it can be a really useful approach for some people. And we talked about menopause CBT because it's something um, I'm trained in. And I met so the lady that I now work with and, and my colleague Angela Sharma works with from our clinic at Madness. We met doing the CBT training, the BMS CBT ah. training. So there's a there is an evidence base around a specific program of C, of cognitive behavioural therapy which has been designed for women who are experiencing menopausal symptoms. So it's in the guidelines. It's got an evidence base that it works, and it decreases the intensity and the troublesomeness, if that's the word, of of the yes. symptoms for for patients. So it's not so much that it decreases the frequency, but it removes a lot of the impact of them. So it works in you know small groups. You tend to have that kind of collective experience where you feel less alone, and it destigmatizes things because you're in a group of maybe six women 
there's a lot of education, a lot of psychoeducation about what's happening and why, which again removes a lot of the fear and anxiety and the sense of loss of control mm. around a lot of the symptoms. And then it's effectively a toolkit of things that you can do that helps you to improve anxiety, sleep, management of hot flushes. And some of it's simple things like paced breathing. It's again a kind of grounding physical techniques that we can use that Mm. slow our bodies and then that helps to send the information to our brain that we're safer and it slows our brain too it works really well it's really really useful for women who've who can't have HRT as an option to to give them practical stuff that they can do that helps and Maggie's offer it so for people that are listening who want access to it it is being rolled out um, in Maggie centers across the UK that is so amazing. It's almost like we need a handout. Every woman who's been put into a surgically onset menopause or um, yeah. goes into a medically onset menopause, these are the things we need to take home. Because sometimes when we see the, the nurse or the oncologist, our mind is so busy, we forget to ha- ask half the questions. So six Absolutely. months down the line, when we're dealing with anxiety, we still need maybe a leaflet or something that I can just shove into my drawer in my bedside table and refer to even a year later just like with yeah this is what we've said so actually when we went back and asked women were they told about induced menopause um so we did this research with maggie's and said you know were you told that you would get an induced menopause from your cancer treatment and i think about half of the women we spoke to didn't think that they'd been told before they started treatment and you reflect and think well actually you know at the time that you're getting your diagnosis and being told you know the stage of your cancer and the grade and the treatment program and all that kind of stuff you're in trauma. You know, you, we know that your brain goes offline when you're in a traumatized state. We know you can't remember and date stamp yeah. information and file it properly. So it's, you know, even if we tell people they're not going to retain it very well, and probably at every appointment afterwards that you go to, that trauma has been triggered again. You're back in that state of anxiety because you're touching in with that fear. So giving people information that they can hang on to, that they can that they can look at when they're ready. Because we also found that everybody wanted that at different stages. Yes. Some people thought it would be just overwhelming to be told that this is what waits on the other side of it, you know. So at Maggie's, we were looking at doing effectively a t- a producing a toolkit, you know, producing like an electronic record of information that you could hand somebody and it's there and they can open it when they want to. And that's kind of one of the ideas that we've got about what we do with information around sexuality, menopause and all that kind of stuff so that people know that they can go back to it when they're ready. And of course, I have heard of CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy before, but are you saying this particular model that you teach is a model for menopausal symptoms and it it differs from the traditional and conventional CBT model? Absolutely. So CBT is just a general term for that sort of approach to therapy. Um, The menopause CBT programme was designed by um, a couple of uh, doctors, one of which is Myra Hunter, I think she's at King's, I think. But it was a specific programme that was designed over six sessions with specific content. And it's that that's got the evidence base. So it's been rolled out, tested, shown to be impactful in a positive way. And now the British Menopause Society offer training, I think it's once a year. But the problem is there's often a difficulty with getting access to it. So although there are trained practitioners... I'm looking at, I'm a director of a local trauma centre and we're looking at rolling out the programme for ladies in that setting who've got trauma history because there's a lot of overlap between people with trauma history, PTSD symptoms and severity of menopause symptoms. Mm. They've got several small studies that show that the vasomotor symptoms and other symptoms of menopause are more intensified in women that have got trauma history. So again, for women who've been through cancer, 
who may have experienced trauma as part of that, it's another reason it's more impactful. And we need Mm. to particularly offer support, you know, in that setting. Wow, that's fascinating, isn't it really? Yeah, I find it. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the medical training, certainly in my day was, there was body-based stuff that went wrong with you or there was head-based stuff that went wrong with you. And we even had yeah. different hospitals, you know, like, you know, the psychiatric hospital and then the normal one and different sets of notes. And I think the biggest change in, in my view from my training is just that bi-directional model that, you know, your body impacts your brain, your brain impacts your body, that we have to look at it genuinely holistically. We bandy around the word holistic all the time, but yeah, genuinely understanding that it goes in both directions and you can't treat one bit without treating the other, I think is really mm. important. Gosh, for everyone at home listening to this now, I'm sure people are going to think a bit like me. Well, where do I start? <laughs> which bit, which bit do I start with first? But it's for everyone to sort of at least have a starting point of a conversation with themselves, isn't it? And think, am I ready to address something? Is this the right time? Or have I got other things on? Because life is happening. Kids, yeah, absolutely. elderly parents, we've got so much other things on. Sometimes we're just too full in our capacity to think I'm going to improve my uh, sexual desire this year. It might just be something that we're going to tackle next year. <laughs> yeah. And doing it for you as well. I get so many people that come in with that reference on a partner. Like I want to get it better for my partner. But actually what I often mm. talk about is if you had to, if you copied the word sex and you just replaced it with pleasure, you know, what thing, what pleasurable things do you want in your life that make you feel good? And what would that look like if you could design it? And starting there, I think, is a it's a kind of a nicer, more healing place to be other than doing it for some someone else's reference, potentially. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for that, Angela. So many amazing nuggets to think about today. Amazing. Can we link to the Maggie's yeah, CBT send- courses? That would be fabulous. Yeah. And I can put those into the show notes and maybe also to the drug you've mentioned for any healthcare professionals, if they want to look them up. That would be fabulous. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. What a wonderful doctor Angela is. And I've had a real stimulating conversation because I love it when someone talks about healing and recovery and looks at us patients and humans from such a three-dimensional approach, from looking at our physical body, the mental body, the emotional body. And when she spoke about low libido or low sex drive and it really hit home that there is no one right approach at how to start it. But I really think that more of us can really benefit from having this internal dialogue and really thinking what is going on for me. Is it actually that my physical symptoms are stopping me from wanting to embark on sex? Or is it that I absolutely have no sex drive whatsoever? And so putting myself into a situation where intimacy could maybe lead onto a different sexual act is something that we almost stop because we don't want to go there. Or have we never spoken to a healthcare professional about what is going on? And perhaps this is our invitation to to start the conversation. Or maybe you're thinking, do you know what? This is absolutely nothing I want to address. I have the capacity to address and it's at the very bottom of my sort of priority list and that's totally okay too because I know we've only got a certain amount of energy and we can't address everything at all times but I also know is that sometimes when things are important 
but we don't know where to start. We sort of put blankets and blankets and layer of layers of stuff over it to cover it up and it keeps bubbling up and in usually very uncomfortable ways. So if anything, then I hope this conversation with Angela is just a reminder to all of us to think what is important to me at the moment and in which way can I address it and to really think open and big and broad and colorful and think there are many different ways of addressing something. There is the emotional side, the mental side, and then there is also physical sides. And can it be a little bit of everything? I also hope that Angela's explanation about this new uh, drug has been as uplifting for you as it is exciting for me. I know it's not readily available through most general practitioners, but there is something out there happening. And maybe it's just for you to do a little bit of research and reading up and thinking, oh yeah, there is stuff happening out there and things don't always um, stay the same. I um, had a really lovely time recording this podcast because I usually shut all my doors and I shut myself away and I'm really in the zone. But today, and I'm not sure if you heard it, I had Buddy, my dog, uh, sat underneath my desk and he sat on my feet <laughs> and he's kept me warm company on a cold day. And so I just feel really, um, yeah, warm and lovely having recorded this conversation and it feels uplifting having spoken to Angela. I hope a little bit of that came across and um, I wish you all the best for the rest of this week. I'm looking forward to chatting to you again next week. Everything we have talked about, including the links to the Maggie Centre, are in the show notes. Um, so have a look there if you want to tap into anything Angela said in a little bit more detail. Have a good week and chat to you next week. <laughs>